0: Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Berlakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to have today as our guest, Dr. Mohaned DeGred, one of the most amazing CTO and complex PCI operators from the UK and around the world, from whom I have learned personally a lot and continue to learn. So Mohaned thanks so much for joining us today. Super excited to discuss with you about your trip during learning CTO and complex PCI.
1: Oh, good afternoon, Manas. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and it's an honor for me to share this with you and uh, yeah, to have this discussion. Uh, we've learned a lot from each other, from everyone, and yes, I'm really excited to, to be joining you.
0: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And then so tell me a little bit, how did this work for you? I know you've been doing this for a long time, but how did it all start? What made you want to go into this area of complex PCI? Was there a case? What was your motivation?
1: Um, it's a very good question. I mean, I think since I started doing angioplasty, I always was attracted to the, because I always find myself attracted to the complicated, or kind of more decision making and more demanding. And as I kind of developed my my career, and when I took my consultant post, um, I do remember the first case I did was a left main, just out of the blue. I was on call the first time, and the first person came for my first on call as a consultant. Independent operator was a a man with occluded left main stem. And I think kick-started from there. I managed to open his left main as where the thrombus, do a, a clot. I still remember that as if it is yesterday. This is 15 years later. And um, yes, the following day, there was a case that um, a CTO of the right coronary artery that was tried three, four times before by a few operators and he came again on the acute list and I took him to the lab and I managed to do a parallel wire using a Miracle 6 and 12 and I succeeded with it and I was just super excited about it and kind of kick-started my, my interest or consolidated my interest rather because I've always felt that I could, I could do this kind of work all the time and that's how it started.
0: So it was a complex case with a great result. Yeah. Robotic left main. Most people don't make it actually when they have a, a robotic left main. Absolutely. And then, and then, but then, how did you learn? You know, it's one thing to want to learn it, but then to actually get good at it. How did you learn? Was it from other people through meetings, through reading, through practice? How did how did it work for you?
1: Now again, I mean, I think it's probably a little unusual for me. It was reading. I'm a little bit of a geek about this. I don't do anything in the cath lab or use any equipment until I know exactly what it is. I know it inside out, and um, so I sta- since I did that first case, I started slowly kind of taking on some cases. I did a lot of reading. I did watch some on the internet. And then, of course, if you recall, there was the CTO Fundamental that came. The, you know, And we learned quite a lot from different people. Of course, you go to meetings, um, you speak to people. But I kind of taught myself as we went along. And I'm privileged to work in a center where we have almost everything available. And we have a, a large volume. So the more you do, the more you, you learn. And of course, you talk, kind of hone your skills and adjustment um, or learn something new by also speaking to other people. But there wasn't as such a kind of a, a, a particular participant who kind of taught me how to do it. I kept doing it myself and learning and talking to people and reading. And uh, yeah, slowly, slowly, we got to the to the point where you could do probably almost whatever you want to do. Yeah,
0: actually, I remember visiting your lab, and I was very impressed by the efficiency and the high volumes. I mean, the patients were coming in. The complex stuff was happening very quickly. They were going out, going home the same day, which you know for us at the time was a little surprising to have like a CTO or left main go home the same day. So clearly, the high volume plays, uh, plays quite a role. But how did that evolve? Was it always fast-paced like this, or the more comfortable you got, the more um, efficient you became as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I have to say the culture has changed. And I'd like to take a little bit of credit in this because, you know, people practice in a certain way. But when you start doing it, as you said, you do a left man or you do a CTO, they could go the, the same day and you find out that it is safe. There's not an issue. People, first of all, question it because, oh, God, you can't send a left man home. Well, I'm happy with it. It's quite okay. We're very happy we could let him. So slowly, slowly started changing. I do remember when I first started Let's say I wanted to do a rotablation or a laser case, the, the staff will roll their eyes and everybody goes, oh, God, a rotablation. And after about maybe six months, we trained all of them, showed them how it needs to be done, how we do it kind of in a, a, a systematic way. And I think now any of our staff, may, some of them now suggest the laser themselves if we're struggling with something or suggest the rotablation. Do you want me to bring it in? It just became the norm. And as you mentioned, I think it kind of evolves because the more you do it and the more you teach people and take them along the way with you, the more it becomes very easy to do. And this is how we kind of, uh, um, uh, this has evolved and became really a part of what we do on a day-to-day basis.
0: Perfect. And then how do you prepare? So you do these complex cases, CTOs, bifurcations, left mains. How do you prepare for those cases? You have a specific algorithm, routine. What is your your way?
1: Um, I mean, I think, of course, you study the... You know the patient, the clinical scenario, why you're doing it and how you're doing it. But for the technical part of it, um, I mean, to be honest, I don't go to do an angioplasty before I see the result in my head if that makes any sense. And I kind of, I see the result and what I'm going to do step by step from the beginning. And you gain a lot of experience over the years. You've seen other uh, operators do, you learn some tips and tricks. And it's always being that one step or two steps ahead to kind of preparing what you kind of do next. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I do study the cases. I do have an algorithm in my mind what I need to do and how to approach them. And having practice over the years, you kind of accumulate a good good experience to help bail you out of of, uh, you know some difficult situations
0: how long do you look at the films do you spend a lot of time reviewing the films and and planning in your head as you say the way you're going to do it how how does that work
1: um yes i mean i do whatever is needed to be honest quite often it's uh, as you know sometimes diagnostic angiogram may not be as diagnostic or but you try to go through it to the, as much as you can, particularly now I do have a CTO fellow or a complex fellow with me, so we go through the images. It takes a little longer now to explain exactly what needs to be done, what I'll be thinking, why I'll be thinking that way, and how it would approach if this happens or that happens. Um, but it could take 10, 15 minutes, whatever is needed, um, to be able to kind of be ready for, for the case and just uh, execute it in a, in a good way.
0: Wonderful, and then, how do you learn these days? do you get how easy it is for to incorporate new equipment, new techniques in your practice how do you how do you do that? Do you just plug them in or you as you say you try to train first and make sure you're perfectly understanding? How do you get new techniques and equipment in your practice
1: yeah, i mean I think this is probably part of the attending some of the meetings, speaking to some of the wonderful operators like yourself you You meet other people, you talk to them about what happens. new equipment always helpful to you know along the way. I do, as I said, I do like to know how the equipment works, so that helps me. You have um, uh, kind of the companies provide a good support most of the time, particularly with the new equipment. Um, And that's how we kind of try try to introduce this into into the practice. It's always helpful if you've seen it in a live case or in a meeting where you've discussed it, you learn a little bit more about, about the new equipment. And to be honest, I think if you look around all our equipment, more or less very similar now kind of there might be some tweaks here and there, so kind of you could build on what you have from before, and see if there's anything new that could could be added to your armamentarium to be able to deliver more successful uh, outcome.
0: Wonderful. So tell us the story of laser. I know that you made Newcastle the capital of laser in the world. You started <laughs> the techniques. You. And I improvised putting the contrast with the laser, making the acoustico-mechanical effects. So you had a huge role. And for me especially, I actually learned a lot from you how to do this. How did this happen? How did you learn how to use the laser and made it what it is now?
1: Um, I think I started, the first time I I encountered laser was during my training. This was in 2000 and, now I'm showing my age, I suppose, 2004. Um, And yes, it was was like a big hoo-ha. There was still the wires, the laser wire are still available, the catheters were a little different. And I remember two reps from the company coming from Holland to do and we had two cases. We spent a few hours doing them. One was successful, one ended up with the perforation with the wire. But kind of raised my interest. Um I, I did my one year in Canada as a fellow. They didn't have the laser. Then I went back and to my job now in Newcastle and I was lucky to that this center has everything and laser was one of them um, and I was, uh, I remember again, there was a bifurcation lesion in LAD with, I could not uh, the wire pass but no balloon will go and at that time, because I was new and kind of, you wanted to establish yourself, I asked one of my colleagues what we do in this cases because I'm not familiar with the center and what you could do, uh, rotablation at that time we didn't have a proper or a good um, microcatheters, I think it was the bro great I tried to deliver through, it didn't go um, so he said, well, why don't you use laser? Uh, so we brought the laser in, and he showed me how to do it. This is based on the, what I kind of remember in 2004. And uh, we did it. That was successful. And kind of because I started taking on some of these complicated, difficult cases, the need for laser become more and more, uh, uh, you know, um, prevalent, if you like. And, of course, I spent a lot of time reading and learning about laser and what to do with it. And then um, slowly, slowly, it became, because I used to get a lot of referrals for resistant lesion or uncrossable, and that became, built a very good experience. In terms of using the contrast, I think the first time I did this was an, an instant restenosis, or under expanded stent, rather, that was put by one of my colleagues, dilated to 30 atmosphere. It didn't work. The patient went home and came back with instant restenosis and symptoms, i tried with balloons and the same thing so i tried with normal laser the laser wouldn't go and i was still kind of restricted stent if you like and i'm thinking to myself this i'm protected now because i knew the mechanism of laser with the bubbles and the acoustic effect so now it's protected with the stent and the fibrosis i think if i put contrast and form the bubbles i think i'm protected i'm not going to cause any perforation and that's what i did it worked like a treat and of course at that time we ended up publishing it and since that time we've uh, We've used it quite often, and in fact, we published a series of uh, underexpanded stents, and and yeah, laser became part of what uh, what we do regularly. In fact, the latest one, I, which actually I should publish, but I think now a lot of people are using it. I've used laser without just at the proximal cap, where I had a resistant cap that didn't go, and without a wire, just putting the laser there and activating it. Sometimes with contrast. You could still puncture the cap. So, yeah, kind of over the years, it's it built a, a huge experience with it. And I'm still, I still run training courses. I still publish on Laser, thankfully. And, you know, it's it's uh, been a good journey.
0: No, I mean, it's been a good journey for everyone, including, you know, us who learn how to do this, you know, since... We'll learn it from you've done it several times, and it's been you know extremely useful, especially before the lithotrips trips and the other new devices came through. It was actually the go to technology and technique for these antilatable lesions yeah but did you run into complications sometimes with these cases, and when that happens what do you how do you do how do you deal with complications? Do you get frustrated, do you get depressed H- What is your approach when things don't go well
1: yeah i mean I think i I own the complication because when I go to do these cases, you know something is going to happen. So the first thing is just to be ready in your mind that if something happens, I am ready to deal with it. And you kind of own it and be in control um, and to, to rescue the patient, to make sure no harm happens to the patient. Um, do I get frustrated? Of course I do. But kind of because it's anticipated, some of the cases, you know, there's always when you're inflating the balloon, thinking, okay, I don't want to be causing perforation. I have to be quite cautious and make sure that uh, you know i don't go too crazy and and so on Uh, so you are prepared in your mind that you're you're aiming for the best but of course prepared for anything that could go wrong um and yes over the year we have dealt with perforation with dissection and so on um and i always whenever something like this happens i always go back and review the case and try to learn if if something has kind of been because to be honest i always think complication obviously have many many reasons why they could happen from patient factors to equipment factors. But the biggest factor is the operator. I always believe this because we kind of sometimes think we're invincible. We've done it before. We got away with it so we could do it again. So we can, oh, I'll do it. It'll be okay. The famous famous um, uh, uh, kind of phrase for all that, oh, it'll be okay. Just give it to me. And all of a sudden you find, and I teach my, my junior by I give them this phrase, you could close your eyes and cross the road 10 times, nothing happens. On the 11th time, you are going to be hit and hit hard. Which means, you know, you, you should not cut corners, really. But every once in a while, we all know sometimes we think we're going to get away with it. And we do. The human body is so resilient. Sometimes we do things kind of not the perfect way. We get away with it. But, yeah, so complications, quite often, I go back and look at them, see why ha- what happened. Could I have done something different? Even up till now, I still do this because there is something to be learned from every single case you do. Whether success or failure. But complication in particular, you do learn quite a lot
0: wonderful and then how, how do you deal with radiation issues you know with the number of cases you do i mean you do so many cases are you worried about your radiation dose and do you do what do you do for that
1: luckily i have kids now but no, of course i am. <laughs> of course i am worried i'm one of very very conscious about uh, radiation and of course the complex cases that kind of the that takes longer time kind of teach you this For the last probably 10 years, I've only done my angioplasty without any magnification. I avoid, um, a lot of the time, it's only store fluoro. Uh, When I started, we changed the, I mean, nobody noticed that, to be honest, because we were screening at 10 frames and acquiring at 15. We dropped it to 7.5 and 10. Nobody noticed the difference. So that's how we do it this way. I use the RAD pad. I use my protection quite a lot. I try to avoid any severe angulation unless I'm absolutely necessary. Try to teach the junior because now I'm seeing a trend with people engaging the left coronary artery in the LAO. Um, you know, that increases your radiation. So, yes, I'm very conscious of this. And the, the radiographer here know that very well with me. they always coning in. They're always keeping the, eye, the eye, eye very close to the patient, setting the table how it should be. Because, yes, radiation, the thing is nobody feels anything. You could stay there for three, four hours with the foot and the pedal, and nothing happens. But it is affecting you in an indirect way. So we all have to be really cautious of it. Um, and thankfully, so far, I mean, I look at my, my radiation monitoring, and my dose is much, much less than even the normal, some of the operators who do normal angioplasty. So I'm very conscious of that, and I think everybody has to be. One of the important things for me when training, it's easy to put your foot on the pedal, and take the, the cine. And that's what tried to knock out of some of the trainees. Because they got trained this way. You inflate the balloon, you, you cine. You deflate the balloon, you cine. You don't need to store fluoros more than enough. Um, and you don't have to cine everything. So we have to be all of us. And it's our duty for the new generation to make sure that they are you know, well aware of the, the um, I don't want to say danger. There is a danger on the long term, but the, the, the consequences of not paying attention to X-ray protection.
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Michael. And again, I think you cannot overemphasize this. I used to call this the heavy foot syndrome. You know, the <laughs> fellows come in and they just Lock put rackets. their foot down and it just they just keep it down there and it's very hard to get into this ingrained habit. But you're right. The more they get exposed to this during the early days when they're learning... The better it's going to be down the line, because once you've been in practice for five, six years, this yeah. becomes much, much harder. So yeah. it's good to hear that these same efforts are happening um, around the world.
1: No, definitely, and, because I mean, I, sorry, just to, because sure. I do remember one time. If if I've seen many operators now around, having travelled around the world, that it's astonishing how it used to happen. Cine for everything. I mean, I remember I can, was watching a case in a country that I'm not going to mention where it was. At the end of the case, the case was done in LAO Codal, everything under CINI, everything. And at the end of the case, the radiation was 13 gray. And I was like, whoa, I kind of was pulling my hair, but, uh, you know, it does happen. <laughs> but yeah, so, and, and our, I mean, the, you build, it becomes a habit. So develop the right habits, and this is my, my emphasis with my junior and the registrars and the fellows. Develop the right habit, it'll go with you for the rest of your life develop the wrong one, it becomes very difficult to change that. Yeah,
0: I no, could not agree more. And now, now is the time. You're right. When you're a fellow, you're much more open to critique. Once you're done, you think you know everything sometimes, and it's absolutely. much harder to change the behavior. Yeah. So, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, are there any cases, any complications that really stand out to you that really change the way you practice?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, there's a case that I, I will never forget. Um, this was a, a gentleman who had a previous bypass operation, um, I presented this case in a couple meetings, um, and he was, um, he was still having lots of angina. He had a large intermediate on the original angiogram that was completely occluded with a very small, it looked like a short occlusion. Um, and I came in to do the case. We, I think it took me two minutes for the pilot 200 to pass through, or what I thought was the artery anyway. So put the, uh, the wire through, inflated proximally no flow, advanced the balloon a little bit more, and inflated, no flow, advanced it a little bit more. The course of the artery looked exactly the same as, as the diagnostic angiogram, the old ones. And after a while, of course, the, the balloon, the wire has exited the artery. And because of his, uh, my uh, previous surgery, he ended up with a loculated pericardial uh, diffusion in the back of his heart. Of course, blood pressure started deteriorating. He was just blood pressure down to 20. Trying to aspirate, we could not reach it. And the only possibility for him was to have an open heart on the table. First surgeon came, comes down, said, no, I can't do this because it's previous bypass. And like, if we don't do this, the guy it's basically going to demise. So the second surgeon came down, opened the chest, and kind of was tamponaded that area or emptied that area. And he was massaging the heart with his hand. And the patient recovered, thankfully, went to ITU and went home. And that case I will never, ever forget. And I think this takes us back to um, if probably if I would have looked for more collaterals to see where the distal artery is. But I was so confident the wire looks okay. Within two minutes, it is where I want following the course. And that stuck in my mind every time I, I think about uh um, you put a wire down and you don't know where it is, you really need to know before you, before you uh, follow to the balloon or a microcatheter.
0: So well, Thanks for sharing. Now, these are a great case. And actually, you know, we had the same experience, actually I had a patient die with a bypass who had a perforation and it took a while to treat it because exactly as you said, he got a loculated effusion that it was very hard to treat. Yeah. So we used to think that bypass is safe, but as you said, bypass can actually be counterproductive with that setting because of the loculation of the effusion. Absolutely. But again, that's always part of the learning process. And the more you're careful in the bypass patients, obviously the better, the better it can get. Yeah. Um, how do you teach your fellows? Can you tell that your trainee is going to be a great operator or not? Is there something that helps you decide that or have a premonition? Or you never know who's going to do what?
1: Oh, That's an excellent question. Um, well, I try to pass on as much... Um, of the way the logical thinking because to me i always tell them attention to details i treat the simplest of cases as the most difficult one you again we're talking about we're talking about habits and you build the right habits you you, you're always going to succeed you do the little things step by step you do them correctly you find the bigger steps and the end result are excellent this is why i try to kind of install in them i try to install them to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it And I use a phrase or kind of an analogy. That's probably a little... Because I always tell them I could train a monkey to do the angioplasty. Get somebody to put the wire and the balloon and the stent. A hundred times they become good at it. But that's not angioplasty. It's the whole process of thinking why and how. And it's the long-term outcome. Because if you do it wrong, even though it might look okay when you finish it, the long-term outcome is not the same. I always encourage them to learn why and how. (coughs) Excuse me. Because if you understand why and the mechanism and the pathophysiology or anything, you're always going to find the solution without much problem. And that's how I try to kind of get them. Now, how do I know? I mean, some of them, I've been very lucky with the with the choice I've made for my CTO fellows because they've all been great. And I suppose the interview process and seeing how they think and what they how they approach Um, you know, the new procedure, learning and making sure that they have put the effort in to learn and want to learn, always very, very helpful. So, um, and yeah, so far, all of them have been excellent. No. Maybe that's down to me, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well,
0: it's true, right? I mean the teacher is critical to what you learn and how you get learning.
1: I, I think I think we have to, you know, because as I said they come you come to you sometimes at the stage where you find really bad habits. Why are you doing this? Well, I don't know because it's, we've been doing it like this for well tell me if you tell me why and you give me the rationale, I've got no issue none whatsoever. Because as you know, this is a technical thing. And everybody will do it a little differently, but as long as the principle is correct, I don't care how you reach that as long as what you're doing is is justified and you do it because of, of. so yes, and you find that the majority of people are willing to learn and wanting to learn and to be to be the best um I always ask them where do you want where do you see yourself or where do you want to be um to me sometimes Andrew Blass is like playing football or soccer as it's called in America sure. There are seven, eight division. There's the Premier League. There's the Division One, Two, Three, Four. They all play football, and the same thing with angioplasty. Anybody could do angioplasty. It's where you want to be, and even in the Premier League, you'll find the Ronaldo and the Messi and the big names. And that's if you want to be there, you really have to be meticulous. You really have to pay attention to details. Try to learn as much as you can, so you could apply it on a day-to-day basis, and you become you become very good.
0: And then how do you teach them? So, obviously, watching you work is critical. This interaction is critical. What are the tools? Do you? Do you how do you tell them to read? Do they publish? I know you publish quite a bit with them in papers. But wh- how do you tell them to learn?
1: Um, I mean, obviously, being there in the, with me all the time. And also, sometimes the old saying said, you, you see one, you teach one. And you, you see one, you do one, you teach one. It's not the same, obviously, in angioplasty. But, yes, sometimes... The whole process is, is kind of collective, if you like. You, they don't have to be the first operator to be learning. But in the same time, if they are struggling a little bit, I try not to intervene immediately. As long as everything is safe, obviously, because they just need to to see their kind of thinking process to where they're thinking and how they're thinking. Let them do some of the work to be able to kind of come up with their own way of dealing with this. Um, and then, yeah, try to step back. And this is the same thing I, I kind of adopt when I'm proctoring, kind of hands off as much as I can. But for the, for the fellow, yes, try to let them do as much as they can in a safe way, directing them to kind of all the asking the question, why do you think we're doing this? Why do you think should be next step? How? What would you think would be? You know, it's kind of keeping them engaged all the time. So it's not only about the technicalities, it's about the whole totality of the case and what, what we can offer and how.
0: Now, do you get nervous sometimes when the fellow is handling the wire or the balloons and he's not quite the way you should be? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, a bit. Um, I mean, I, I suppose, yes, because, uh, uh, yes, sometimes you have to be a little more firm. and Listen, this cannot happen because, again, even if you get – I mentioned that a little earlier. You can get away with something before, but that doesn't mean it has to be done. So, yeah, you do get nervous and you have to be kind of direct. No, don't do that and kind of just – little bit of instruction too and and the same when i do this and also i explain why because i think if if anybody whatever it is if they don't understand why you're saying what you're saying they could repeat it again as long as you understand why and that's why i keep telling them whatever you want to do fine justify to me why what's your thought process and if it is valid absolutely no problem
0: Wonderful. How about the live cases? I know you've done many live cases. You had us and many people come to your lab, watch cases or transmit around the world. How do you see them as a learning tool? Is it worth the stress potentially that comes with it? How do you see the live cases?
1: I think live cases are excellent tool for learning. Um, Of course, they they have to be chosen in a way that that have an educational value. Um, I don't. I don't think some. Well, very rarely that happens. The majority of the times, all the operators are humble. They are there to teach and to learn. Um, and it is not about showing offers oh look what I can do. Absolutely not. Because the simplest of cases can teach the audience a lot, depending on which audience you're obviously transmitting to. But um, live cases are, to my mind, are really an, an excellent tool of learning. An excellent tool of of uh, Kind of disseminating the knowledge, showing what you do. Because I could stand and give a lecture about how to manipulate, I don't know, a, a micro catheter. But if you're not seeing it live, when you see it live, is completely different. It'll stick with you, and that's why I think live cases are really excellent. And often you'll have a nice chairman and panel that contribute to the to the discussion, to the how things could be conducted. The only thing I've learned over the years is that when you're doing a live case. Obviously, you're not doing a life case out of nothing. You have the experience. You know what you need to do. And I always say anybody in the audience sitting there, they'll be thinking they could do it better than you, and they have a different way of doing it. And it's important to make sure that you stick to your guns and what you do, unless it's absolutely and utterly necessary. Because once you start listening to different opinion, things could go wrong. So you stick to what you do. You present what you want to do. Because we all know if you ask three interventional cardiologists, their opinion will give you four of them. So it's uh, it's very important to, for for that. That's what I've learned over the years from life cases. But yes, I do see them as an important tool of of teaching and learning.
0: Do you get nervous or anxious for a life case or complex cases in general?
1: I'm nervous. I I don't think I get nervous, but I'm kind of ready, if you like. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, yeah not nervous no because i always think when i'm doing a live case i kind of try to take that out of the equation in the way that okay i do this on a day to day basis i'm not going to change what i do yes i'll be talking a little bit more but i'll do what i do every day and um so that kind of helps me quite a lot um i don't think maybe at the beginning early on i might have been a little nervous but nowadays it's kind of like okay it's uh, because i know that i could i'm in control if you like I'm not saying that in a kind of big-headed way, in any way or shape. But just like I said, I've done this all the time, so I'm not going to change. I'll just think about it as if I'm doing the case on my own and just talking through it, like to talking to the fellows. So,
0: perfect, as yeah. if you're working on your own, and that's important, as you say, because sometimes if you listen to many opinions, you said things might go in a way that may not be the best way for the patient and for yeah. the for the case in general. So, you've done a great job. You've trained many people. You're a very established interventionalist in the UK, worldwide. What is next for you? What is the next thing that you're excited about?
1: Um, I mean, I'm I'm still probably carrying on so far. I still love what I do and probably will continue to do this for a while. Um, I've been doing some – now I'm venturing a little bit toward the mitral and tricuspid. I've done mitral intervention for a long – with balloon valvotomy. Now, of course, there is more with with the uh, mitra clip and the pascal. So I'm heading that way. I've been doing this for the last few years now. Uh, what's next? I'm kind of also very privileged. I've got the professorship in the university. So I'm concentrating also more on teaching, I'm carrying some more more training courses, and I'm trying to establish a, um, a master degree in cardiology and interventional cardiology through the university. And hopefully that will be my concentration. Um, I don't need to be doing as many cases as before. Um, of course, I'm not allowed to because we don't have, a I said, shortage of staff and cancellation. So at this stage, and carry on to carry on publishing and and um, you know, I'm doing as much as I can for the time being. But yeah, mitral valve is probably the next kind of expand on it a little bit more and carrying on with what I do.
0: Perfect. Well, the mitral mitral uh, patients are in good hands, given everything else you've done. It's good to have you involved in that field as well. But what are you most proud of so far, both in work or outside work?
1: Well, um, I mean, I think I have to be proud of where I am and what I achieve. When I got the professorship, and it is really a very proud moment, you work hard to get there, and it's very, very nice to be there. Uh, Where I am and my, my, my standing in the interventional community, just, you know, I feel proud of this. Outside of work, it's my kids, my son and daughter are the best thing in the world and i'm really very proud of them and i'm just do my best to offer them the best life and the best um environment to grow and flourish and get be the people they want to be so that's do, that's you, want my, my become, do you want them
0: to become do you want to become interventionists? are you going to push them?
1: <laughs> i mean i'd love them i'd love them too i'd love them too but you know it's um My son, he knows how many arteries in the heart and he knows how to do the angioplasty with the wire and the balloon. But um, I mean, I'm not going to push them, definitely not. But um, if they wanted to be it, I'll be absolutely 100% supportive.
0: Wonderful. Well, how do you keep in shape? I know you do all this, you know, huge volume of cases, a lot of publishing, teaching. How do you keep in good shape to do all this? Do you exercise? Do you eat well? Do you read? How do you mentally and, and physically prepare for this?
1: physically <coughs> <coughs> sorry, um, I do go to the gym regularly um that keeps me really in good shape, thankfully uh, because it's important to kind of get uh, I used to to do a lot of mountain cycling since my kids came I kind of that curtailed a little bit because mountain cycling to me is one of the most uh, beautiful sport you could do. Diving was the same kind of again curtailed that. I go to the football matches regularly. I have a season ticket to Manchester United, which I go and attend the, the matches. But yeah, the gym is basically what what keeps me fit and keeps me really um, ready for for uh, uh, you know uh, all the physical and the mental uh, demand from the job. Um, and relaxation, I do read and watch. I follow politics a lot. I like politics. I'm reading always different books here and there. So it's um, yeah, keep yourself entertained.
0: And to keep uh, things in balance, yeah. what is your favorite book and or your favorite and your favorite movie?
1: Oh, favorite movie, interesting. Um, I mean, I suppose it has to be Goodfellas or maybe Forrest Gump. was quite quite a good movie that I enjoyed a lot. Um, I do action. I do love action movie. So maybe some of them unrealistic, but they're enjoyable to watch. And I. I like uh, the Born Identity, uh, and I like I like uh, Taken, just because they're fun and they're uh, yeah these are kind of movies I watch few times. Um, Reading books, different ones. I mean, The Art of War. I always I like that book quite a lot. Um, There are some books written currently. I'm reading some of them um, with um, from a brain surgeon and another one from an anesthetist written about. and also, The Black the black uh, Box Thinking is quite a very interesting book. So, different different things. But to be honest, you like... the, th- those books are kind of around, around the medical profession. It's, I mean, I, of course, I read novels and all the rest of it, but these are the books that kind of stick in mind and kind of you learn something from them.
0: What do you think you apply, what you learn from these books into your everyday practice? Or this is more to get you... Um distracted or wh- 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 how do these books help you on your day-to-day
1: um, I, I think there's no question subconsciously you are learning something and you probably act it without even noticing this when you go back and look about sometimes what you do i i've read that in a book or i kind of um but I, I don't read them to kind of to apply them if you see what i mean I read them to enjoy and to learn and whatever it is. If it comes handy when I'm dealing with any situation, then fantastic. If it doesn't, I'm not reading them because of that. Um, but yes, it's, it's. I'm sure subconsciously, if we go back, it's something we've read somewhere or, we'll, you know, um, yeah. Reading Perfect. book is quite important.
0: Perfect. Well, it's good to keep the balance, as you say, you know, both physically fit and keep your mind active as well, yeah. both for your work, but for your overall well-being as well. Absolutely. But so how do you, so in closing, how do you advise people? So someone comes to you and says, look, I am just finishing up medical school or I'm visiting, going into cardiology and I want to learn to become like you and learn to do these complex cases. What would you tell them? Should they do it? And if yes, how should they do it?
1: Of course. I mean, yes, if somebody expressing the desire, absolutely. Um, If you're asking if you could do it, then that means you have the desire to do it. And you should not, nothing should stop in the way. Now, how do you do it? That's a very good question. Hard work reading. um, You need to have the the basic knowledge really very, very solid. Uh, Because, as I said, the technicality of it uh, it doesn't impress me that much if there's no thinking behind it. This is my, my, so I always tell them to read, to learn about, discuss, and try to read as much as they can. And, of course, observe many of these cases. And yeah, take the, the bath that will, will lead them to where they want to be. There's nothing to stop anybody from doing this. It's all teachable. It's all easy. Yes, as I said, they're going to be the the different division depending on what you want to be. And this is, as I said before, you ask them, where do you want to be? And if you want to be the good, you have to work hard. And I will say, if you're good, you're good whatever you do. Whether you're in a big center or in a small center, it's how you how you apply yourself and your knowledge and what you do to your patients. So yes, I'm very encouraging if anybody wants to do it in fact um, there was a discussion because we have no limit on if all of our trainees want to do intervention we say yes and i was i was strongly with this because i if if this is your ambition you should do it nobody should stop you some people were talking about the numbers may not be easy to to train but we have a large number to do it and in fact actually that was a reflection on me because at some stage i was i almost was stopped from doing intervention because some excuses were given to me and i'm like no you train me because this is what i left my country for this is what i've worked hard for and i want to be and i know i'm going to be a good interventionist so i want to train i don't want anybody to tell me i can't you cannot train and that's why i applied for anybody so yes absolutely very encouraging for anyone
0: wonderful well mohaner thanks again so much i mean it's been an amazing journey that you've been through and I think you've impacted you know, thousands of lives, both of patients, but also for other physicians and fellows and trainees around the world. So thanks again. It's been great talking to you and learning from you.
1: Thank you very much, Manu. That's fantastic talking to you too. And uh, yes, I hopefully we'll see you soon. And uh, thanks very much.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sensei Podcast.